This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me once again, it's been a pretty quick turnaround for this uh, great friend of the show and friend of mine to come back. Um, He is an incredible writer. Um, He has written an incredible book, and we just talked to Kyle Turner. You guys would have heard in the Kyle Turner episode. We were talking about public enemies, and I mentioned this man's great book, Off the Map, Freedom Control, and the Future in Michael Mann's Public Enemies. He's the founder of the Minneapolis uh, St. Paul Cinephile Society and also a contributor to Slant and Point magazine. Welcome back, Nile Schwartz, to One Heat Minute. Hello. Hello. I love love to be on One Heat Minutes. I got about 40 of them for you. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. We are presently rage reversing out of uh, out of car spots in LA um, with everything that we have left in the world, which is basically a small television in our car, and we're at the hundred and forty second minute of Michael Mann's ninety five crime opus heat, and it's two hours twenty one minutes um, on the dial. If you're following along on your Warner Brothers Blu ray, slightly seconds out for. Um, uh, for anyone with the d- d- definitive director's edition, but if you're just in the car park and Vincent has walked out of the major crimes unit and he's essentially going to shower and sleep for a month and a car he's just reversed in the driveway, you're right there. You're right there with us. So what Niles and I are going to do is we're going to rage reverse together out of this. We're going to marvel at the incredible performances of background and supporting actors and television's being kicked out of cars and then we're going to come back and talk to you guys about it. There it is, my friend. Yep. And I have a question for you. Did those people yes. know they were in a movie, Niles? Did those people at the bus stop know they're in a movie? It's my favorite thing to wonder every time I see this scene. Oh, my goodness. I love it. it that question is very pertinent to my thesis for this whole minute, and that has to do with the, the tension between reality and representation. And I think, yes, they were extras. And... Part of Michael Mann's talent, part of a great artist's talent, is to be able to represent reality in a way that it is uncanny. And this is where the television comes in. And in Heat, 
television plays a major role. I mean, the thing that the first witness for the crime in Heat is the console TV man. TV man. He's the TV man who gets the word slick, and that is exactly what just getting that word is what leads to uh, Neil Macaulay's downfall, really. Yes. So, so this, the movie, in a way, is kind of bookended by these televisions. And I think the central scene in the movie, or one of the central scenes, is where Vincent first encounters Neil, and that's through a television. Yes. And that, in a way, is, you know, is interesting to me because when Vincent goes home after the, that crime scene, his primary mode of intimacy is not with Justine, with his wife. It's with the TV. He wants to eat his chicken, his goddamn chicken with the TV. <laughs> and and have a cheeky a cheeky sliver of Jack Daniels to just take the edge off of the entire evening. I feel yeah, that that's my energy sometimes too. <laughs> but this this is all very interesting, but going beyond heat and let's just go back through the corpus of Michael Mann. Let's go back to the Jericho Mile yes. and what those mates are doing early on in the early minutes of the Jericho mile, they're watching television and the emphasis that Michael Mann puts on television in terms of the world, the game show world that these people are seeing a world of fantasy being realized, you know, normal Joe's and Jane's getting all this money and being surrounded confetti. It's this alternate reality. And that brings me to something that Michael Mann said when he was kind of doing a penological research for straight time and Jericho mile and thief, uh, was that there are some guys who adhere to a philosophy that you do the time, you don't let the time do you. And I think that just by subscribing to the fantasy, you know, falling into the trap of, of, um, television, constant television watching is in a way having the time do you versus, Absolutely. You're doing the time. Now, let's go further. Let's go to Thief and that really perplexing shot in Thief where James, where Frank, played by James Caan, is about to unleash hell on yes. Leo, Robert Bosky and yeah. company. Yes. There's a shot, a very curious shot of who a character that I assume is Leo's wife watching a television. Yes. And she sees Frank or she seems to see Frank and then almost catatonically turns away from him and it's back a- towards it is a wonderful it's it's the only thing that it's comparable to in heat is when Neil smashes Wayne Gross face on a cafe table <laughs> and then there's a, a big burly what looks like truck driver with with glasses bespectacled bespectacled truck driver looks up and catches Michael Torito Tom Sizemore's glance and he yeah. looks at him and in that moment, he makes a decision that 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 what he's looking at is too much trouble for him to still maintain eye contact and still think that he's going to get up and do anything. So he just puts his head down. <laughs> understands that it's best that he he even though he looks like a physically capable guy, it's not worth fucking around with these dudes. No, it is not. Uh, then of course, Manhunter's all about televisual images. The psychosis of Francis Dollarhide is someone who that it relates to images he works at a photo lab he finds his victims through uh these family images images of happy families people that are uh, have accomplished a life that he can't 
relate to at all. And Will Graham, what is he? He's looking at a television when he's channeling, when he really gets the the flavor for Francis Dollarhide and is able to identify with him. And and also uh, in Dollarhide's gaze, that's the brilliant yeah. thing of man is Dollarhide's gaze in the movie is video, so it feels very televisual. And then when Will taps into that and he goes into the homes and he's ascending the stairs and there's this same video energy to the way that it's the shots are constructed. You're just like, oh, that's just like a little deft formal touch. Yeah, a little bit of static, a little bit of something. There's just something so deft in that that's like, this is a great choice. This is someone who knows that you're sort of subconsciously manipulating people's perceptions here. It's great. And even the character, the true life character, I think Dennis Wayne Wallace, the serial killer that inspired Francis Dollarhide for Michael Mann, was Mm. someone who believed that he received uh, messages from TV and from, uh, you know... Power lines, that kind of thing. But, it, you know, in the and, first step, not hel- the pilot hel- episode. And hilariously, first- Francis Dollarhide, Tom Noonan, is in heat and he is literally snatching images, uh, oh. snatching information out of the air. It's a nice little touch. <laughs> Michael Mann has <laughs> a sense of humor, folks. He's got a freaking great sense of humor. In the crime story, I think the first episode, not the pilot episode, but the first episode is about a serial killer who gets messages from a tv yes. basically yes. As, as i recall it and you know crime stories also where we have the first, the demo version dennis farina telling his wife's uh lover you know you can't watch my television set yes you know done done not with the flourish of al pacino <laughs> and, you know the ralph scene and that classic scene but you know we go on and on of course the insider and ali are all about image are about television and so on and make us conscientious of how images are formed uh and how that they affect us uh psychologically and culturally public enemies same thing with john dillinger's experience in uh in one movie theater where everyone is sort of obeying like automatons look to your left look to your right and then a subjective experience of cinema as he sees Myrna Loy on the screen and man's genius is such that he knows through his own manipulation of those images which is nothing like Manhattan melodrama the movie that we're seeing in public enemies man knows that we know that John Dillinger sees uh, Billy Frechette yes he doesn't have to flash back to flash to an image of of Mariam Cotillard. He, he he's able to transmit the information uh, just through Myrna Loy's face. It's so it's this beautiful sort of transmigration of the soul, I think. Which brings us back to heat. And okay, just can I just say the- can I just say everyone <laughs> in the world who's listening to this, this is why I love Niles on this show. Like this exact <laughs> conversation, I'm having a great time. I hope you are. I just want to pause and say this is precisely why I love Niles on the show. Let's get back into it. Back to heat. How does Archangel Jesus de Montoya, how is he convinced by Jose Yero that this is not casual? It's through watching a television surveillance screen image of Isabella with Sonny Crockett. So, so man is conscious of how the cops and robbers movies that he's making can be very derivative. I think in interviews a lot, he uses that term derivative and, that's why even though they made great films, like Jean-Pierre Merville and Jules Dessin, I don't think he likes being compared to them. No. And he's even, he's even been uncomplimentary towards Melville, which sounds like blasphemy and it kind of is, I think. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, he's not influenced by them. He's influenced by uh, real 
life figures. And this gets to, I think, his his um, interest in representing reality. And that could go back to his how he says that his three primary influences, Stanley Kubrick, Eisenstein. But uh, in this case, I have to emphasize, as I did in the first time we talked, Jiziga Vertov. Yes. And the why and the struggle, the agon of the artist to represent life as it is or life unawares. And that, and that gets back to your observation of the extras and how they don't look like actors. No. Nope. You know, and, but Michael Mann is a rare, great film. You know, when dealing with movie stars, whether it's Will Smith or Al Pacino or Robert De Niro or Tom Cruise, he more than any other director that, or most other directors that I could think of, uh, has these movie star countenances that look unconscious of themselves. In, in other words, more, more natural than other movie star performances. I want, you know, when you watch Will Smith and Ali, it feels like you're watching uh, Muhammad Ali in a lot of ways. It doesn't feel like this is a, a no, pretense. I, th- I, th- I think it's like he, he's so aware that, this larger than life there's like a there's like a larger than life energy that is contained in this in this in this form that is will smith and then he's so good at you know um sort of enthusiastically helping them strip that away like you know, it's rare that a filmmaker you know almost commands method but like will smith's like yeah i want to do this role and he was so passionate about it. he's like i'll do 11 months of vocal coaching and fight training you know like there's that's a huge life and world commitment to do that and and similarly with Tom Cruise like the biggest movie star in the world is breaking in in wearing courier outfits and breaking into restaurants like he doesn't do that for the average director <laughs> there's some there's some magical quality that he's able to convince people that if you do, you're doing these settings you then get to you know you get to detach from all of the other bs that's in your life and paparazzi and nonsense and you get to go you know you're just a person wearing a suit and you can you can travel in, in you can travel inconspicuously. I think that's a, such a thrilling thing. You know, all these guys are inconspicuously either in their characters or inconspicuously in these worlds. And, you know, what better place for Will Smith, the biggest movie star in the world, to hide than inside the biggest and most influential sports person that's ever walked the face of the earth? <laughs> like, it's just, it must be a nice holiday. It, it, you know, and I think another guest on your program maybe it was you said referred to it as method directing yes. versus method act yeah that's and that's, i'll take credit for that one i think that's a little phrase that i call that, that i coined method directing i find you <laughs> I, I i i i find that's and it's less about you know it's more about um he's his imposition of method, you know, some people, I wouldn't say it's an imposition, but it's an inspiration. It's like an, it's an example of method. Like everyone's going to be prepared. Everyone's going to have the backstory. Everyone's going to read. No beast. So fierce. Everyone's going to do gun training. Everyone's going to have interrogation training. Everyone's going to have a backstory. Everyone's going to do interviews with people who've really experienced this because that is the paramount. I think that's what's, I think that's what man finds as derivative. He doesn't like, um, uh, and you get a sense of within in the films. He's, He's way less interested in people whose whose intent is to replicate and to um, and to you know make like this weird simulacra of something that already exists. Whereas mm-hmm. he, as in another piece of art, you're just doing a copy. You're tracing, you know, essentially the elements together. He's way less interested in that. He's way more interested in like a tangible reflection of what something, some an authentic experience is. So when you know, I like to go back to his 
I, I have this like as a permanent, um, a permanent link that I've got like a tab, sorry, opened in my Google Chrome, and it's like Michael Mann's top ten, actually eleven films of all time, and yeah. they are Apocalypse Now, yeah. Avatar, Battleship Potemkin, so Eisenstein, Beautiful, which is Alexander Alejandro Gonzalez in Naruto, Citizen Kane, Doctor Strange Love. My Darling Clementine, Passion of Joan of Arc, Raging Bull, and The Wild Bunch. And his mm. 11th film is Nakashima Tetsuya's 2010 movie, Confessions. And I've never seen that. I've been trying to hunt it down. But in all of these, like, he's, 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 he talks about, you know, and, and one I think that when we're talking about real life, he talks about My Darling Clementine. So he's like, it's a fine drama in the Western genre, stunningly subjective and cinematic perfection. You know, like he's talking about these things. Wild Bunch, he's like, no other picture captures the poignancy of the last of, a sense of the West, of aging, and the pathos of Twilight. Like he's very, in all these movies he's talking about, and and Beautiful, which is the lower depths of Barcelona, he's like street life, the human soul, resplendent with grace, pathos, love, poetry. You know, that's, you know, he's talking about authentic portrayals, subjectivity, and pathos. Joan of Arc, Carl Theodore Dreyer's uh, impetus for making that movie, or one of them was to accu- more accurately than any other movie represent a historical event. Yes. And that, that really, part of that comes through, I think man might make mention in that list that you talked about, the use of close-ups. Yes. And the, the kind of the chromatic, the new film stock that Dreyer was using to get those close-ups where you didn't need as much makeup and Falconetti expresses so much through her face uh, in a way that is to this day, you know, in a league of its own. Yes. I agree. God, that would be something good. Can we just throw that into the universe at small art house cinemas every now and then just like once a year, can you play passion of the drone of arc? Like big, beautiful print. God damn. It's a beautiful movie. Minneapolis here at at our cathedral. Oh, really? (laughs) With uh, the live uh, uh, choir uh, doing the Voices of Light soundtrack. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Did you get a chance to see it in that format? Oh, my goodness. It was uh, the first time I went to church in quite some time. (laughs) I was just going to (laughs) say... But it would get, if, if, if that's what church offered, old prints of movies with choral scores, I'd be there every Sunday. That's Literally. True film. But this brings us back to TV and how TV frames human beings, I think, in a, you know, a tacky way. It, doesn't, it defines them. It frames them without dimensionalizing them. Uh, and, but Michael Mann wants to harmonize real life yes. and, you know, it, it, his, his movies don't have this the same kind of uh, they're a little bit more elegant than say Scorsese's anthropological gangster films are yes. for example uh, people in Michael Mann movies are kind of dressed too good they live uh, you've brought up many times how they live in too good residences for probably <laughs> their social we, we um, allow the romance. That's where we get him to be his most romantic in his property choices. <laughs> and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm good totally with that. Cool. Uh, but um, I think that here we, we, we and approaching the minute. I don't know if we've approached the minute, but we have Michael or, or Michael 
Al Pacino, Vincent Hanna, get in the the front, get you know, driving away with his surrogate partner, the yes. television, <laughs> yes. and you when it, you know, it kind of rocks in the front seat against the dash. And um, the music that's playing is Michael Brooks' Ultramarine. Yes. And we heard this music one other time in the film. Uh, and that is when Neil is having dinner with his friends who all have partners. And we get to the sense of this guy who's alone. And as this music is playing, he goes to make a phone call. And you have that deep blue behind him that aqua blue kind of color as he's calling Edie cut to eat just as the Michael Brook guitar hits as she's in front of her computer doing her graphic design and it's an ushering in of Neil's longing for another person for intimacy for you know it's not just the one night it's I want you here with me And, and so what you and the Brook score continues yeah. Until they are being, they are the subjects, and they're being observed from a perch, from a, they're being surveilled from behind a sign. It's still, it's still lingering in into that moment too. There's the other intimate relationship in the movie between Vincent and Neil, Neil. probably at the same time. So, <laughs> yeah. so it's kind Who's of the a- loner blooming. <laughs> Who's loner. the loner? Yeah, it's. Uh- it's I think that worst. that can come off really creepy, Niles. But I think that you know, if you if you're saying someone that you're attracted to, and you're a Heat fan, and you're among friends, and that person happens to be alone, I think it's totally fair to say, "Who's the loner?" You know, I think it's totally fair, just for for anyone who's a fan of this show. There, there are people who've often said that this movie is a love story between two men, and yes. you know, that, you, that I think the film totally offers that reading. They're the two men who are made for each other, and you know, I think. Cam Collins, for example, is one critic, K. Austin Collins, who's brought that up, at least in his tweets. I don't know if he's written anything about it. But um, that just, okay, you have the ultramarine music playing, you know, which is about the longing for a partner. And it ties in with the ocean, the water, the you know, the aqua blue from that earlier Neil scene. And then this minute, actually, after he gets, after he ditches the television, he kicks it out as <laughs> yes. if Vincent is saying he's rejecting this partner, this alternative partner. He's just going to be his own person. He's just going to shower and take a nap for a month, for a whatever. Month. Yep. He's a, you know, a room unto himself, a room of his own. Uh, he goes in the, that hotel room, and what does he step in? He steps in water. He doesn't see it. Where does he put his keys, by the way? On, On top the of the television. Yes. And he goes out, looks at that window, looks at the city, which is looks like that iridescent algae, the same way that uh, Neil and Edie, their intimacy was early on established. And at the same time, it's reflective of when Neil came home and looked out at the ocean. So you have all those ideas, you know, the city of lights, the water, ocean, intimacy, loneliness, um, all colliding. And I think in a way it all comes back to that song and – yeah, it, it, it's funny when it's hilarious. I think when Vincent kicks out that television, it's sort of cathartic. It's in a way, it's just the ultimate fuck it, whatever. It's sort of yeah, everything sort it, of it, that. He, I think it's it's so you know, there's such 
as we just talk, as you just sort of articulated, there's so many elements, and in this movie, it's like a especially as we're heading into this this sequence. You know, it's the 142nd minute of a movie that has 166 minutes of screen time, and this final act that is just a whole. It's a rich tapestry of all of these echoes of match cuts, of match themes, of match music, of match philosophy, of of you know inverted. Um, shots that were seen so many times throughout the film, and I think what's so so funny about this moment is that before we have all of this great, you know, when he's in the car and the music happens, to get Vincent to this point where he's in this inverse moment, um, he he's exhausted every trick he has in the book. He's exhausted all of his mental capacity, all of his being able to read and and preempt Neil's behavior from that, you know, this really brazen thing of sitting in front of a coffee shop and in front of him. He's exhausted all of his leads, his traps, and in this moment when he feels like Neil's escaped the noose, this last thing, this defiant totem of like, I'm taking some charge of my life as I'm leaving this postmodern dead tech shithole house, he's like, it means nothing. I think in that weird way, it's like that TV means a lot to him in his little private quiet moments where he can just have a moment to himself and he can be quietly distracted. He can just let time do him in the evenings and nothing is, you know, the white noise of television just helps quiet his mind that is racing a mile a minute. But I think the defeatist kick of that television out the car, which is brilliant and has these incredible, uncannily real and authentic performances of people perplexed that Al Pacino just kicked television out of the car, which is my favorite thing to think. It's maybe the best extra performance ever because it's literally, I feel like if if this was these days, it would be like a person going on their phone, like going, Al Pacino just kicked the TV out of the car. <laughs> like, that's, it's this great moment, but he kicks it out. And it's and I, to your point, Niles, it's like, is yes, it's catharsis. Yes, it is. But it's like, it's so de- it's a devastating catharsis because it's like this last totem of what is real life. I've sacrificed everything to try and catch this guy, and I've ended the, the th- my third marriage, and this is where I am, and yet I stand empty-handed here. Like I'm empty-hand, I'm empty-handed, and 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 I'm and I'm empty, and and there's no satisfying where I'm at at this moment. It's like the peak deflation. That kick is where he kicks away. It's just nothing left. It's a variation of what Frank does at the end of Thief in a yes. lot of ways. Big time. You know, just, you know, not just where, you know, he doesn't kick the television, but he <laughs> blows up goddamn house and he blows up the goddamn green mill in Chicago. Our <laughs> lot, you know, but it, it, there's something as absurd and ridiculous about that gesture that, you know, goes to uh, private subjective thing that only Frank understands in that instance and just as the television only Vincent really understands that it, in that instance and that's why it's a great moment because that's something that only one person understands it you see the cutback to the extras watching it what the hell does that mean the audience feels the same, you know I think we understand what it means on a very sub- subconscious level perfectly that's yeah. why it works yes but at the same time it's something he doesn't have for- to say a word that's what's For beautiful. For individual, Vincent Hanna, he doesn't, he, that says as much as any other thing that Pacino has said throughout the whole uh, three-hour film, with, you know, and that's a beautiful thing, I think. But, yeah. It's awesome stuff. It's so good. It's so good. All started 
from the console TV man, from Bosco's console TV man, and this TV that's been so important. And what's even funnier is that this is just a small touch, but he has a remote and he's holding the remote to that television and the television is so close that he could touch the television. (laughs) This is what I've always been perplexed by. He's he's so close. He can touch it, but he just won't change the channel with his hand. Uh, Another interesting choice. More for us to ponder. But yeah, look, we, we encroach on what is like a devastating moment of the film. And again, this is where the music flips from Ultramarine. And takes a very somber tone, and Vincent's sort of melancholic observations, which sort of encroach into the next minute. So we won't go into too much detail, but I just love that there's a foreshadowing, and this is the distraction that goes to Vincent's mindset, which is you know again to really you know at the same time as not bearing the lead with what we're about to see, we sort of get a bit of foreshadowing that something is not right. Um, but it's so anti-Vincent to not notice that. You know, to walk into a room and not pick up those details. Like, this is the guy who's, like, pointing at things on a crime scene late at night. And he's like, I can see all the things that I want an answer to and you better have an answer for me. And in this moment, he's like, well, I don't know. Well, he's expired. He's done. I mean, at the beginning of the movie, we see him uh, have sex with Justine and it cuts to him taking the shower. And here he's uh, as he he leaves the police station he says so long motherfucker you were good which is something again bringing up this sort of homoerotic undercurrent. <laughs> but I, I think there's something to it that he says so long motherfucker you were good I'm going to take a shower. That's it. He's done. You know That's we it. fucking power of speech. <laughs> that applies to his professional life. He's just like I'm done for the month. I'm just turning off. I'm going to a, a hyper-real environment, a hotel room, which is not a, a real, quote-unquote, real place. It's, you know, a duplicate one of many other rooms and one yes. big house, basically. And, uh, yeah, meanwhile, Neil is in the midst of living his own fantasy. He's, he's, with, he's with Edie, and he's going to go kill Wayne Grove eventually. And, that, and, and, you know, that's where you're guests in the future will deal with but something i want to bring up here it has to do with the i even though i've talked about the music but um the music for heat i don't know how many time times you guys have talked about the source music for heat because the the soundtrack for heat changed my life and i loved hearing ultramarine the first time when i saw heat in the theaters and you know i got the soundtrack and you know on that soundtrack it's sort of as a teenager that was sort of a gateway to so many artists and that was that was in the 90s in the in the maybe the early 2000s movie soundtracks were kind of a gateway and here you had not only the gold but you had the Cronus Quartet playing gold you Quartet. had yep you've got Brian Brian Eno had, uh Michael Brook uh, I can never say it without spelling it Einstein or without you know sounding Einstuzande Nobauten yes you know this industrial Yes. And, you know, a lot of goth industrial people, and they, they love them. And, of course, this uh, Lisa Gerard, you know, and this led me to Dead Can Dance, and William Orbit, James, Daniel Lenoir. But most significantly, you know, there was Moby, but through Moby, Joy Division. And yes. your theme song, The New Dawn Fades, you know, I'd never heard of Joy Division never. or New yet and then i was like what and what is this and then i think train spotting came out the next year and yes. i got that sound 
and that had what's my favorite old-time pop song, Temptation by New Order. And went, oh, and, and it's written by the same people. And but all you know, the, all this music just sort of crashed in on me, and it was such a you know this avant pop, you know, art rock kind of stuff. It was different from other you know like Casino came out around in this you know within a month, and you know it's a another great soundtrack, but it's pop standards and yeah, lots uh, of classic. There's there's no there's no one better than a needle drop. I would argue there's no one better at a needle drop than Scorsese. Like there's literally no, no one that's better, and so it's it's the total. It's a total contrast to this album. Like you've got, you know, we talked about the um, Giorgio Ligeti, the concerto for violoncello and orchestra, which um, is a Kubrick, you know, a Kubrick grab um, uh, from another Kubrick film. There's, you know, B.B. King, Thrill is Gone. You know, there's 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 so much here. Steve Roach, um, um, you know, Solitaire, um, the Black Cloud music. Um, and Lisa Gerard goes on to do a bunch of stuff for the Insider soundtrack which comes yeah. out later. So you've kind of got this great, yeah, he's a, the Michael Mann needle drop um, is like, it feels like a, it's all about organic incidental. It almost feels like incidental music. If you go into a club, that's where you hear the needle drop. Yeah. It's, and, and the I other think- selections are so bespoke, you know, they're, they're, they're theme tunes for characters without being theme tunes for characters. They're theme tunes for emotional, um, emotional themes of whatever, arc we're working on in that story at the time it, it works it uh that's the thing is that when i saw Hito, it was, it was i didn't know that it was a bunch of source music i thought yeah well this a lot of this is uh, um golden tall and the chronos quartet and you know for all i knew new dawn fades you know there's there's so much guitar in this texture in the soundtrack it could have been golden tall for could have been golden tall yeah if capital young uh, you know virgin ears at that time but <laughs> but you know as time went on you know michael mann soundtracks i i felt wonderful when miami vice came out because a few years or a couple of years before that um it was the same weekend that collateral came out actually yes. i was on my way to the rock concert headlined by the cure and interpol and the rapture and this band called mogwai was playing out and i was just becoming familiar with mogwai and i had bought and but uh, happy songs for happy people. And as I was listening to this, uh, as driving to Chicago from Minneapolis, like this stuff would be great for a Michael oh, Mann man movie. <laughs> yes. Ah, this is wonderful for Michael Mann. And then when Miami Vice came out, it was like, oh my God, two Mogwai tracks. And talk about, but, you know, when you talk about, um, like I was talking about, it's so funny in the previous episode, I was talking about Audio Slave. I'm like, Audio Slave is the perfect, like at the, the time of, you know, Collateral Miami Vice is like, the perfect band to be in a Michael Mann movie. It's just got yeah. the, that, you know, there's something, you know, may you rest in peace. Chris Cornell's voice has just got this melancholy and this steel and this grit that is just so, it's like all the things that a, a really uber cool Michael Mann character wants to be, Chris Cornell's voice can convey in a track, you know, it just like, and, and you know, Morello's sort of obsessively, um, percussive guitar leaks um, that underscore that. It's just like, oh, this is great. It's great. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, a lot of people shit on the the audio slave. I, I frankly find it fine. You know, I yeah, I understand why Michael Mann really likes Chris Cornell, and it it reflect. You know, as he says, you know, the, the vocal reflects the inner lives of his characters. I think so. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's something I. I 
wish I, I don't it's I think it's more difficult these days compared to the 90s even just to license music. It's like impossible. You know, when you think about all the music that Scorsese got in the mean streets for as little money as he had or yes. even who's that you know, at my door, a student film in 68, uh, you know, like Black Hat has very little it has apparently a lot of source music is in it but it's nothing uh, as I think familiar as what you had in Vice or Collateral or Insider no the, the most recent thing that sort of flummoxed me when I watched it and, and not nothing to do with content but just the needle drops I was watching Ricky Gervais's new show on Netflix Afterlife and it's like and it and it has it has Ro- it has Robert Zemeckis level needle drops like it is unbelievable the tracks that 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 has and I know that he's a quite a purveyor of pop music through the ages so they're very sort of you know that's why I call it Zemeckis they're very sort of pop relevant you know you know some sometimes you'd say bordering on grating in gratingly obvious music choices but they're huge they're like. Fleetwood Mac and you know just the just massive songs that are happening all through this show and I'm like God Netflix must have paid through the teeth for these for these needle drops like unbelievable you couldn't do that in cinema if you didn't have Netflix money to go yeah I want to add this song I want to do this uh, you know maybe they got a discount I'm not sure I'm sure that the the Irishman will you know I know that Robbie Robertson is working on the Irishman he tweeted about it yes so uh, so I'm sure that'll have tons of oh, can't wait. interesting so i'm looking forward to it um yeah but anyway uh, the thing the thing when i talk about the ultramarine and heat though and we talk about how fast i mean heat was made very quickly mm-hmm. at least post-production i think was very quick uh for a movie of that scale and yeah, two 24-hour editing teams working uh, on different working on different times Sorry, a 24-hour editing you, team working in two multiple suites. To give you an idea of how fast that was, I saw. I, I told you last time that I saw Heat four times theatrically. Yes. The second time I saw it, uh, you know how the film ends with a Michael Mann film. Yes. Second time I saw it, a Michael Mann film was at the beginning of the movie. So I it it's like at the last minute he was still juggling whether or not to have it at the end or at the beginning i think and some prints were made with it at the beginning (laughs) but when it first came out on vhs videotape during this minute that we're talking about there was no ultramarine music he had taken it out or they just forgot to put it in or something (laughs) thankfully for the wide the letterbox vhs version of heat it was back in oh my god gives you nice times i've bought heat over the years but i was just gonna say uh, i've I've got it i i definitely had a copy of it on vhs but but in australia that like widescreen vhs's in australia were like they didn't exist the first one that i can remember that had a wide release for widescreen was and and maybe this was in more you know, um, cult video stores and things like that, but certainly in the suburbs where I was, like not an hour north of Sydney when I was growing up, um, the only widescreen movie I ever saw on a VHS was Star Wars, like when they did re- reissues of Star Wars movies. Like they were like the first ones that became sort of, you know, popular locally. But, you know, at the time, 
Definitely had heat on VHS, had it on DVD, then had it on DVD again for special editions, then had it on, you know, Blu-rays and multiple Blu-rays and DVDs all since then. But it's so, like, it's so unconscionable now that people are like, oh, yeah, like, you you can't get a widescreen version. Like, how strange is that? In... TVs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've got on the console... old console TVs that that widescreen look that letterbox looked upset a lot of people and the first time I saw it interestingly enough was last of the Mohicans which went straight to rental in widescreen not in the proper 235 to 1 but in a kind of a compromised 185 to 1 yes and I know a lot of people that watched it uh and were just really pissed off because I said, oh, this scene is cut out. And I was trying to explain, no, you have more scenery, but you're watching it on a television that's, you know. Tiny. Even Excruciatingly if it's, even tiny. If it's tiny, you know, because this is pre-widescreen television. But even and like, so, in most, like, you know, I grew up with many TVs that are smaller than my 13-inch laptop, <laughs> and way less clear, way less clear. Um, yeah, it's so funny. It's so funny. But no, the, like, again, a, you know that's part of his artistry, right? Whatever he, what is, what he's driving with here is a very. It's 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 much in the same command that he has the emotional trajectory of the movie alongside, you know, what people should be feeling emotionally alongside the characters and the performance. Um, I think a, a needle drop in a Michael Mann movie is often disruptive. Like he's having he's having to be. It's when he decides to be, you know, both metaphorical and literal at the same time that I feel like there's a needle drop. Like he can just go bang and throw like a big message and try and echo characters' inner workings. But Heat is such a work of subtle brilliance and the, these complementary factors that are happening over the whole spectrum of this big epic that I think any of those needle drops feel too disruptive at this point in the movie. This movie is like right now, especially where we're ratcheted up the tension, the final act of the film, you know, there's no... There's no lack of complete control that's happening in this in this final run to the to the finish line. Mm-hmm. Oh my Agreed. goodness! Oh my goodness! Well, look, ladies and gentlemen, I think that's the perfect way to exit. This has been an absolute thrill um, to talk to Niles again, and I, I I took the time to say it in the middle of the episode, but that sort of intertextual understanding of Michael Mann's sort of thematic journey um is exactly why i love talking to niles um particularly whether it's like formal or character or influence um and you know a guy who doesn't need to maybe keep a tab um on permanently on his google chrome of michael mann's top 10 movies to know what each of these little comments and blurbs say about them but um but i but i love him to death for it so niles thank you so much for being a part of the show you've been a huge part your three episodes have been amazing and i just wanted to say thank you for being a part of the show if if we don't get to speak before the uh the infamous end credits thank you so much for being a part of the show i wanted to thank you for having me on the show three times i'm so honored and i i love listening to the show and i i admire so many other of the other guests and uh it's wonderfully wonderful to be in such good company oh well you're welcome you you belong here sir you're you're right here with with all of us other crazy people that are obsessed with this film and not um look ladies and gentlemen if you you're gonna do you're gonna do two things um, at the end of this show. You're gonna go and follow Niles at Niles Files on Twitter, um, and then the other best place that you can find him 
is you can click on the link that's in the description to go and buy Niall's book. Um, and if you can't get a physical copy or you don't, you know, you, you prefer a Kindle, that's how you can get it. That's how I got it, um, uh, which is uh, on Amazon.com. You can check it out off the map. Um, and Freedom Control and the Future in Michael Mann's Public Enemies. And it is an absolutely phenomenal read. And you would have got a sense of Niles' writing style in the way that he kind of traverses time and influence and theme and sort of how he then is able to bring it back to what he's trying to say in this very episode. So it's been an absolute thrill talking to him about it. So thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Niles, once again, for being a part of the show and all your support and generosity of time and spirit. So thank you, sir. Thank you guys for listening again. OneHeatMinute.com is where you can find us and all good podcasting subscribers. Thank you to Mr. Garth Franklin for our web, uh, website design, Mr. Paul Davies for our theme, and uh, we'll catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner. Just have a listen to some Ultramarine and kick the living daylights out of that TV as you're getting out of the car. <laughs> <laughs>